All right, it's good. Well, we're still in winter break mode. Everybody's coming back next week, Lord willing. And um, so we're looking forward to kicking off the semester and, and getting going on that. And uh, talk a bit more about that probably toward the end of, of today. But we're finishing up our series this morning uh, that we started toward the end of last semester on the Bible, or we're calling it the written word. And it's just really been a focus on what the scriptures claim for itself. Uh, the Bible is a, is a book unlike any other book. And we preach from it, love it, where our lives depend on it, and we want to deepen our devotion to God in His Word. And so a study on what the Bible actually is or what the Bible claims for itself is a means to do that, to deepen our devotion to Scripture. So that's been the goal. And um, everything rises or falls, like we've said, on what you do with this book, on what humans do with this written text. Um, everything. Uh, our eternal destinies rise or fall, fruitfulness in our lives rise or fall, whether we're able to overcome sin patterns or not rise or fall on what we do with this book. So it's incredibly important that we have deep convictions about the scriptures. So let's do a, a quick review, kind of as a, at the tail end of our, our series here, where we've been um, in this series. Don't say anything. There we go. Yeah, all right. Well, we've covered. Number week one. We looked at inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. So, rapid fire, you talk to me. What is inspiration? What does it mean? Okay, the Bible is from God. Good. Uh, that is inspiration. It's from God. It's sourced from God himself uh, to us. And what, uh, where does the Bible claim that? What are some key texts? Louder. 2 Timothy 3.16, yep, and where else? Any other text we looked at? So what, actually, pause, what does that say? Yeah, it's in that translation he quoted, it's given by inspiration of God, where it's literally God-breathed. It's come from him, good. What's another text that we looked at? 2 Peter 1, what does that say? Yep. Yep, God's prophets carried along by the Spirit. Word came from, from him uh, to us. So point being is that although the human authors are writing these things in sort of normal human means, there is a supernatural element behind the Scriptures. God's given us this book and this anthology of texts we call the Bible. And we saw that this, the, the very idea of inspiration is that, that this book represents God's mercy to us. Why? That God's that it's God's communicating with us. Why is that? Why is it a mercy? Okay, we can know Him personally, but what does mercy imply? We don't deserve it. Yeah. Why don't we deserve communication from God? Yeah, because we're rebels. We're running from Him. We 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 in our sin and our deadness, we turned our back on on our Creator. We claimed to be wise. We became fools instead. We suppressed His truth. We ran from him. We worshipped idols. The list goes on. And we deserve, we deserve that judgment from, from the Lord. Okay? So this book is a mercy to us from God. That he wants to communicate with us. He wants to relate to us. Uh, and he intends to do that through these, these written texts. So we looked at that. And then week number two, we looked at inerrancy. Inerrancy. What, so what does inerrancy mean? 
that the Bible is fully true. Yeah, that's a positive way of saying it. Negatively, how, how would we say it? The Bible is without error. Right, so it's without error on the one side, and it's wholly true, fully true on the other, completely truthful. And we said it doesn't mean that we're, the Bible is claiming this sort of like technical, scientific precision in every single context, right? It uses round numbers. It uses uh, exaggerations at times. Uh, different things like that than normal human speech like we use today. Um, and this, so inerrant doesn't mean like a, you think of a like scientific lab because, because accuracy depends on the context, right? We, we use the illustration about if you're, somebody asks you how old you are, you're not going to tell them down to like the minute and the second, uh, even though that would be technically accurate. Uh, what, they're, what they're looking for in the context is the year, right? And that's around around year. So context determines uh, accuracy, we could say. And um, so the Bible's claim here is that it's, it's completely truthful. And so we saw that because it is inerrant and true, the implication, main implication from inerrancy is that we are not inerrant. Okay? Humans are not. The Bible is. So the Bible should define reality for us. It should define, and it does define the way things truly are what is actually true versus what we perceive to be true, what we want, maybe what we feel, what we think is best in our own wisdom. The Bible upends that. It defines reality for us. And it, it sort of cuts through the fog of this relativism that we live in in our, in our culture, you know, where you do you, uh, it's your truth, my truth kind of thing. It, the Bible just doesn't, it doesn't allow any wiggle room for that. This claims to be the authority, the authoritative text of, of truth. All right, that was inerrancy. The Bible's wholly true. We can trust it. And then third week, we looked at authority. So not only is it truthful, but it brings authority. It has, a, it has an inherent authority to it. So what do we mean when we say the Bible is authoritative? What, is a, what does an authority have the, have the ability to do? It creates something. It creates an obligation, right? So the Bible creates an obligation in the hearer because it has authority. And that just means that they, they carry ultimate authority over us. Like a parent carries authority over a child. They have the ability to create an obligation. Like your boss has authority over you at work. They have an ability to create an obligation um, in your life with your job description. So the scriptures are the ultimate authority because they represent God. God is the highest being. And his word is binding on all his creatures. So his creatures must obey or we must face the consequences of that, of that rebellion. And thankfully, the same God is abounding in mercy, so he doesn't give us humans what we deserve, right? He won't be mocked, though. And so either we avail ourselves of his mercy and come under his authority, or we're going to be held accountable for that rebellion um, on the final day. So that was authority. The scriptures have an inherent authority to them. And not only does it have authority, but it also has power. Scriptures claim... um, power, to, to be the, 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 the channel of God's power. And so we saw that God's words are an active power, they're able, meaning they're able to accomplish everything that God intends. So his words are able to accomplish everything he intends. And where do we see that? On display. First pages of scripture. Genesis 1, what happened? Created the world with his words. So everything came into existence through the power of his word. So that's power, authoritative power, able to accomplish what he intends there. 
created the universe, sustains the universe by the word of his power. He reveals our hearts. He creates his people through his word. He hardens enemies through his word. He's going to transform his people through his word. And he'll ultimately defeat all of his enemies through his word. Uh, the scriptures talk about the breath of Christ when he comes back, meaning his, his word. Or as we've said, Martin Luther, one little word, right, shall fail him, shall fail the, the ancient snake, our ancient foe. So that's how powerful his word is. We looked at Isaiah 55. We saw that God's word uh, will never go out from his mouth and return empty. Instead, it's always going to accomplish everything he intended to accomplish. So that is very encouraging. And then the last couple weeks before break, we were looking at clarity, that the scriptures claim that they are inherently clear. Well, we, we, the big word for that was what? what do, you, do you remember the big word? Perspicuity. Yeah. How many of you try to impress your friends with that? No? None of you fear man, so you wouldn't do that. So you're saying, okay, I'll do that. Clay, why do you accuse me of that? What's going on? All right, clarity of Scripture, perspicuity. And clarity, we're just talking about, it's that the, when the Bible claims to be clear, it means its content is inherently accessible. It's inherently understandable. In other words, like we said, when God speaks, he doesn't stutter, he doesn't mumble when he speaks. His words are clear, and he's able to communicate, and they are able to be understood. That's the idea with, with that. And so that's incredibly encouraging. He's given us clear directions, clear promises, things that, that, that aren't too far away from us, things we can, we can receive. So we looked at that, weeks five and six, and then now today I, wanna, I want to um, really end our series with a, maybe a, call it a two-for-one, uh, with, with two attributes that you're going to see are closely related, two claims of Scripture, uh, what we're calling necessity and sufficiency. But the scriptures are necessary, they're absolutely necessary, and they are sufficient. Necessary and sufficient. So those are going to be our, our, our final themes today. We'll wrap up our series, and then we'll, we'll, we'll transition into, um, into the semester. So let's look a little bit more in depth at each one of these qualities. We'll, we'll define them and, and work through them a little bit here, show why they're important. <clears throat> Uh, we'll ask, you, we'll ask, I don't know how many questions, I forgot, several, five or six maybe, five? We'll say five. All right, five questions. Number one, all right, we'll start with necessity. What, is, what do we mean when we say that the scriptures are necessary? What is necessity? Well, basically what we're saying is something we've already looked at from a couple angles, but the Bible claims that without God's word, his creatures are unable to be saved or sanctified. Like, without it, without the scriptures, without God's word coming to us, whether we read it or it's preached to us or whatever, we won't be changed. We won't be saved. We won't be transformed. So, in that sense, scripture is necessary. Or you could say, it's all we've got. Right? And I understand, you know, you put an asterisk, God works through the scriptures, through the spirit, all this. I'm not like, I'm not negating any of that. I'm just talking about the Bible, okay? So, what is, the Bible is all we've got in terms of salvation and sanctification. So let's look a little bit more carefully at that. What's it, what's it necessary for? I've already said it. It's necessary for our conversion. Necessary for our conversion. 
we could go to so many, so many texts, but I, one that came to my mind as I was meditating on these, these themes this week was uh, Romans 10. Familiar verse here, but uh, worth thinking about. Romans 10, uh, verses 14 and 17. I left one of the verses out here just so I could, it wasn't central to the argument, so I just packaged it all together here so we could see it on the screen. It says, verse 14, How then, this is Paul talking about Israel, and the need for them to hear the gospel. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they, had never, they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Right? So the implication is they won't. Right? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, they can't. They can't do that unless something else happens. And how are they to believe in whom they never heard? Well, if they never heard of him, not going to believe, right? Well, then how are they going to hear without someone getting that to them, something to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? So, he says, summary, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, the word of Christ is at the bottom of this whole equation. If there's no word, then there's nothing to preach and there's no faith, right? There's no trusting in the gospel. So that's, think, just think through this in terms of necessity. Because we are blind and we're dead in our sin, we won't just come up with the good news of the gospel. That's not going to happen. We all know there's a God, that's for sure. Even unbelievers know there's a God. We're all acutely aware of good and evil because God has given us a conscience that accuses us or excuses us, right? Everybody knows that to cheat on a test is wrong. To murder someone is wrong. We all know that our world is messed up. All we have to do is look around. But the Bible says that we suppress the reality about God, that we suppress our sinfulness, we suppress our culpability. We blame shift, we make excuses. We explain our natures, our sinful natures away. We reduce our sin to some kind of condition. And if we are religious, our default setting is to trust in ourselves. It's to hope that we're good enough, or that we're at least not as bad as we could be. To hope that I've done enough. To hope that I've said the right prayer. I've been baptized the right way. To just hope that God will let me off the hook because He's loving. Because, by the way, God only sends really bad people to hell. Or because we hope there's really no hell at all. And that is all the gospel of self. That's what we come up with. That's another gospel than the one we find in Scripture. And there's no way we would know the true gospel apart from Scripture and apart from God revealing it to us. Apart from someone telling us about it like we, we saw in Romans 10. And that God Himself became one of us by sending His Son, by living and dying for us precisely when we did not deserve it. That God has made provision for the worst of us at the cross and that He calls us to come to Him to trust His mercy, to receive forgiveness freely. That is unbelievable news. That's, that's, humans don't come up with that. It's scandalous news that we would not believe on our own. God had to reveal it. We had to hear it. And that is the only way we can be saved. And Scripture then is absolutely necessary for our salvation. 
So without the truth, there is no salvation. It's necessary for our conversion, necessary for our salvation. Romans 10, very clear. But not only do we need God's words for that, we also need God's words for our growth in godliness. Right? They're necessary for our transformation, for our progressive growth. In other words, without them, it won't happen. Without the truth in your soul, without laying hold of what is true in faith, you will not grow. You won't really grow. You might make what seems like progress for a season, maybe with a New Year's resolution, a couple of New Year's resolutions, or you might be powerfully motivated to make a change because you're anxious, right? Like, I don't want to fail this class, or I don't want to let my parents down, or I don't want to look stupid in front of my friends. And so I'm anxious, so I'm going to make some changes. Or you might be motivated by anger and resentment, okay? I'm going to prove that ex-boyfriend wrong, like, he dumped me and said I'm never going to date again, you know, so I'm going to, I'm anger, resentment, I'm going to make some changes, change myself, be more appealing, whatever. Fleshy, self-reliant motivations like those, they might produce change, quote-unquote, but that's not the kind of lasting and glorious transformation that God produces through His Word. Transformation that's accompanied with tremendous peace and overwhelming joy. That's lasting. It's a kind of change without humble faith in the truth, according to Scripture. And that's not possible. Faith apart from the truth, apart from faith in Scripture, that is not possible. Change won't happen without it. Scripture is necessary for our growth, in other words. We've seen this text a lot. I reference it a lot, but I just you can, you can get a lot of mileage out of, out of these texts. So John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. It's the only thing that will truly free us. We could go to so many other texts. Ephesians 4.16 says the truth alone is the means of our growth. By speaking the truth in love, we grow up into every way, into Christ. John 15, if we go fast forward in John, you see that it's when Christ's words dwell in us, His words dwell in us, that we bear much fruit. Transformation, that's the language of transformation. Psalm 1, when we meditate on the truth, we yield to it above what we think and feel. We become like a tree that's planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in every season. Leaf doesn't wither, Psalm 1. Again, the centrality of the truth in in the change process, we've looked at that a lot. But my point here is just that God's written revelation is absolutely necessary for our conversion and our sanctification. Without the truth, it won't happen. So if we want to change, we've got to know that. We've got, that's got to be deep. So it's necessary. Uh, it's necessary for our, our growth and transformation. So let's, let's talk about sufficiency. It's closely related to this idea of necessity. Sufficiency, what is this? Well, it means that, that nothing outside of Scripture is required for redemption. So it's necessary, and then nothing outside of Scripture is actually required for our, our conversion or change. So you can think about it like this. If necessity of Scripture means it's all we've got, right? Scripture's all we've got. That's necessity. 
Sufficiency is it's all we need. Right? Necessity, it's all we've got. I ain't got nothing else, you know? Sufficiency, it's all we need. Completely sufficient. That's the idea. And you can see how, how they go together. So that's what it is. It's, it's, it's all we need. It's Scripture. Nothing else outside of Scripture is required for our, our conversion, our change. So question, again, what is it sufficient to do? Well, same categories uh, that we found in necessity, but this time I, I'm arranging it by some texts here. It's all we need for life and growth, says Peter over in Second Peter. So he gives us some categories. He says for life and growth. Is sufficient for those things. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. It's all we need for life and growth. Go with me here. It says, His divine power has granted to us, listen to this language, all things, that's language of sufficiency, it's all we need, everything, all things that pertain to life, meaning eternal life, and godliness, meaning our growth in that life, our moral transformation, everything to eternal life and godliness, how? Through the knowledge of Him, there's truth, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through these promises, through the truth, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's going to go on to say how it, it saves and sanctifies. The truth saves and sanctifies. We add to our faith all these qualities, and we're going to be richly provided an entrance into the kingdom. That's 2 Peter 1. So he's saying that we have all we need from God. God's provided all we need, both for eternal life and for our growth, and he's provided it through this knowledge of Christ, through these precious and very great promises that we have contained in the scriptures. So that's high level. And then if we want to get more specific, you can go over to 2 Timothy 3 and see, here we go, and see that it's, it's also able, the scriptures claim that they're able to save and mature. Same categories, um, just another text here, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's able to save and mature. We'll flip over and look at this one. Paul's talking to Timothy here, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been, a, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Listen to this. Which are able, there's language of sufficiency, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, so we looked at that. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's sufficient, it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete. Complete. Equipped for every good work. So there's, there's no good work that we're going to be equipped for apart from Scripture. You see that? We're going to be complete for every good work. How? By this, this Scripture that's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. So, the point here is where it's, it's, able to, it's able to save us and to mature us um, through it. So the point is that the, the Scriptures, the point Paul's making here, Peter was making earlier, is that the Scriptures are sufficient. For it's, it's, 
It provides all we need for, for these things. So you think, okay, Clay, well, that's helpful. You're, you're grinding that home. Why, do these, why should this be convictional for us? What, what um, man, there we go. Why do we need to know this, right? Why do we need to know these, these truths? What's important about these ideas of the Scriptures being necessary and sufficient? Well, because like all these things, we're tempted toward the opposite, right? Like we're tempted to think the Scriptures are not completely sufficient. I'm sure you've been there. You say, how? Like I, very clear, like I believe those texts. Let's say you have a problem with anger. No, none of you do. That was a joke. We've all got problems with anger. Okay? So you're going to church, you're trying to do your daily quiet times, but you are still flying off the handle. Right? Like you're still losing it. Have you ever thought something like this? I don't think the Bible's working. It doesn't have to be anger. It be whatever sin struggle you're, you're dealing with. I don't think it's working. I need something else. I need something different. I need something more if I'm going to change. Now, that we got to troubleshoot, okay, that question, like why, isn't, why may not the Bible be working, right? So there's this asterisk, right? Let's put that off to the side. Just focus on that thought. I don't know if the Bible's working. And if that actually settles in, if that thought settles in, that the Bible's not working, you need something else, you're going to open yourself up then to other solutions. You might YouTube, right? Grandma Internet. What, uh, what to do about anger? And you find a video of a lady who says that angry people need to go to a safe space. They need to vent. Get the anger out so it doesn't toxify them. Makes sense. I feel like I have anger inside me. Feels like it needs to come out. So you go buy a pillow. Instead of blowing up your sister, you demolish that thing, you know, in your bedroom. You know, you're venting your anger on your pillow because that's what the lady on YouTube told you to do. And then you think, well, I feel a little better. Like, I didn't, at least I didn't yell at my sister this time. So, ah, must, must have worked. Like, she must have been right, right? And my only point here is that if you don't have a deep conviction that the Bible is both necessary and sufficient for your transformation, then it will open you up to abandoning it the first time it seems like it is not working. You tracking with me? when the scriptures aren't working on your timetable. You're going to turn to what seem to be quick fixes, which are really just false solutions, false hopes than what actually has the power to change and to transform you. Anybody that's been punching a pillow for long enough realizes that the punching of the pillow does not take away their anger, right? It doesn't change them. You'll find yourself relying on something that will not come through for you in the end. That won't really deal with the root issues that are going on. So psychologists might prescribe you medication for your antidepressants. Nothing inherently sinful about taking a medication. 
But that's, that's a quick fix. That's like banging out a smoke alarm because you don't like how it sounds. The pain is the indicator that something, wrong, something is wrong in your soul. And so if you don't deal with the sound, if you don't deal with the root issue, the smoke, the fire that's actually burning, then these are just, just going to be short-sighted solutions. Again, not saying that anything's inherently sinful about taking medication or not. And if you're on them, certainly don't stop them apart from talking to your doctor and, and really getting some, getting some help here and, and thinking through those things. My only point here is that we're tempted to think that the scriptures are not completely sufficient, and that is only, there's only fuel on the fire here in our culture that we live in, the psychologized culture that we live in. And if you don't believe that the Bible is necessary, if you don't believe it's sufficient to help you, then you're going to run to these other mechanisms. You're going to try to cope with what your, your sinful condition. You're going to try to cope with it. And you're going to be content to settle there rather than experience true and lasting transformation that comes slowly and over time through the Scriptures. And so we've got to have a deep conviction. It starts here with the deep conviction that the Bible we say we believe actually claims that it's absolutely necessary and sufficient. And it's sufficient even for our moral transformation. Even if we're not experiencing that transformation in the moment, right? We're young. we got a lot going on. Like there's, there's a lot of growth that needs to happen. And it's going to happen slowly over time. But as this conviction settles in, some really good things will start to happen in your life. When you really start to believe in the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture, it'll preserve you from wrong diagnoses and false solutions. It'll protect you. This conviction, even if you don't know what to do, right? It will at least protect you from going into the wrong portals, the wrong diagnoses and false solutions. So let's take that same example with anger. You might have that thought like, man, I don't think the Bible's working here. I keep getting mad at my sister. But hang on, you say to yourself after a message like this, time out. The Bible claims, like I just heard on Sunday, the Bible claims that it has the power to transform me. That it is sufficient. That it will set me free. Jesus said that in John 8. So, there must be something wrong with what? Two options. Bible, you. Any guesses? <laughs> you, right? With me. It's not something must be wrong with me, with how I'm approaching this transforming word, not the word itself. The conviction that Scripture is sufficient just protected you from making a wrong diagnosis. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here? You're about to diagnose the issue. You're about to say, I'm angry, but the problem is outside of me rather than inside of me. Right? And the solution's outside of Scripture rather than within it. You almost went there, but you pulled up because you remembered that, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Bible claims to be sufficient. You might not know the answer, but this conviction will point you at least in the right direction. And so now, you're going to be more inclined to go to your pastor, to go to Scripture, to go to a mature mentor here, to ask for help and direction in that very text. Or you might try to find a sermon or ask one of your boundless friends who've been around a little bit longer, okay, what teaching have you found helpful on this? Have they preached any sermons on this? 
And that's exactly what you should do. Right? Seek out someone who is spiritual, Galatians 6.1, who is able to restore you. Ask them how the scriptures apply to your particular sin struggle. Ask them for help. My point here is that the conviction is going to motivate us to run to the scripture first when we're confronted with our problems. Number three, motivates us to run to scripture first when confronted with life's problems, with uh, the problems of our, our growth. As this truth settles in for you, as it becomes a conviction that the scriptures are necessary, your impulse is going to change. Without this truth, your impulse is like, ah, got to just find whatever's going to work, you know, give me relief. But with this conviction in place, you're going to be more, your impulse is going to be changed to go toward, toward the Bible now. So in that anger example from earlier, now you're going to be headed toward the scripture with fresh eyes, likely with help from a discipler or a pastor. And the Lord's going to begin to help you see that the anger you experience is coming from within you. It's coming from some unmet expectation you have. Because James 4 says, your passions are at war within you. You want something and you're not getting it. You're craving it and it's not happening for you. So James 4 is helping you see that actually my anger is stemming from, most likely, some unmet expectation. Something I wanted that I didn't get. Something I thought I deserved or I thought I needed and I haven't received. So now I'm upset. Maybe your sister even sinned against you in this process. So this conviction that the Bible is sufficient has led you back toward the Bible for a proper diagnosis of your own heart. So yes, your sister sinned against you, but you responded wrongly in anger. And the scriptures help you see that. And then this Bible and this this sufficient word that we're talking about also goes further. And it assures you that even contrary to what you think and feel, God has not abandoned you in this process where your sister sinned against you and the anger and all the things. He's with you even in the moment when your sister sinned against you. And even more, he brought the situation to you in his love for you. Her sin against you is an opportunity, says the Bible, for you to become like Jesus and to model what he's like to your sister. As you learn not to retaliate and respond with gentleness, you wouldn't have come up with that. That would not have been your diagnosis, right? That this is an opportunity. That God's giving this to me in his love. He wants me to, wants me to grow and extend his, his love, right? God's giving you a chance to understand his love for you, his patience toward you. He responds to you with the utmost gentleness when you sin against him, and he wants you to learn to pay it forward with your sister. So he's brought you this. Where's that coming from? Where are those truths coming That's coming from here. That's not coming from your heart. If a pastor tells you that, it's because it's coming from here, right? This word is sufficient to, to, to help us understand life's problems. And the Bible tells you how to handle those anger emotions. It's not, it's not by, by buying a pillow to vent your anger out on that pillow, poor pillow. Okay? What did it do to you? Nothing. The Bible gives you truth to remember, and it gives you practical steps to take, like, being, like encouraging you to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Well, that's helpful. Okay? Just because you feel it doesn't mean you need to say it. Just close your mouth. Right? Proverbs, very helpful. Just, it's better to be silent than to open your mouth and speak without self-control. Just wait. Get a handle on your emotions. If you feel mad, don't talk. Practical, helpful, biblical advice. 
It warns you that you can start an entire forest fire with just one little word. So be careful. It tells you how to forgive from your heart so you don't grow embittered. How to become a peacemaker. So many more things, right? The Bible is going to equip you to do. So my point is, when you take this claim that the Bible is sufficient, that it's all we need, that it's necessary, it's all we've got, then this drives you to press back into it, right? Not go away from it. To run towards Scripture first. To go beyond the superficial, like, my daily, I'm a daily Bible reading, you know? And, like, let's target this thing. Let's, let's actually get, what does Scripture say? How does it apply to my situation? The, it's not that the Bible's not working. The Bible is completely sufficient to transform you and change you, but you're going to have to understand it and appropriate it to your specific scenario. And when you do, when you dig deep, you will find the living water that refreshes your soul and that brings that transformation. It's characterized by God's peace, His joy. It's unlike anything the world has ever known. All right, let me just give one little caveat here on this point. Every time I talk on these things, people are, but what about, you know, um, I'm not saying the Bible is claiming that it's like your, your personal physical health book, right? Like, it's all you need for your problems. So just pray over your COVID and, you know, just the Bible's sufficient to heal you for COVID. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. Or... If you have a bad thyroid and you're, you feel down, you feel depressed because your thyroid is not working properly, that you don't need a doctor or medical advice or medication. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. That's not what it's claiming. So there are organic issues that we need to go to God's common graces like doctors, use medication, those things for those. That's not, what I'm, that's, not what I'm, that's not my point. So that's my caveat here. The scriptures are claiming when it claims to be necessary and sufficient, necessary for our conversion in our maturation, our growth in Christ. Does that make sense? Do you hear the caveat? This is like the home crowd, so I think you know by this point, but throwing that out there. Okay. All right, now, finally, it motivates, last thing here, and we'll end here. We need to know these truths because it, this actually ends up motivating steady growth in what the Scriptures teach. So if, if like, my point here is if you believe deeply in those passages that we looked at and you think, okay, I know that the Bible is profitable for my transformation. That's why God's given it to me. And the problem is with me and not with the text. Then what that's going to do is it's going to motivate steadiness, steady growth in what the scriptures say and how they apply to your situation. It's not going to happen over time. It'll, it'll help you with this, Right? And it'll, it'll even that out, and you'll still have some of that, for sure, but it'll even it out, and it'll help you have, make slow, steady progress over time. There'll be stability, consistency in your life, and every good fruit that that brings. So my point here, why is this important, is because that's, that's our aim for you. As you're, as you're beginning to grow in the truth, it's going to motivate this steadiness and growth in what the Scriptures teach. And just it, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens sermon by sermon. Bible reading by Bible reading, as you memorize that truth and you apply it to that particular situation, as you discern those lies that you believe in whatever scenario you're in, it's a, it's a grind, right, at times. But it's, it's slow, steady growth. So we're going to look at um, 
kind of more of that growth, you know, as you're thinking about Bible reading and all those things, next week I'm going to just preach a standalone sermon kind of as a, as a transition from this series to the, the spring semester in just how to, tips on how to read your Bible. So it's not going to be some advanced hermeneutic class, um, but it's going to be some things that I think are, I think I've got like eight tips, okay? This is going to be rapid fire. I'll give you some examples of like things that if you know you kind of got in your back pocket, it's going to take you a long way in making the most out of your Bible reading because I'm sure you start in the new year and you get your Bible plans and you want to read those things. And so I want to try to get out in front of that a little bit, and I thought it was a good, a good tail end to this, this series. So as we wrap this thing up today, as we know what the Bible is, what it claims for itself, the kind of glorious book that this is, that our devotion to this text, these texts, will deepen. When we know that the Bible is authoritative, when it's powerful, it's sufficient, it's necessary, it's clear, our devotion to Scripture, our pursuit of the Scriptures will deepen. And we'll find ourselves responding like the psalmist in 119. Psalm 119. We're going to long to know this book. We're going to treasure it more than we treasure silver or gold or whatever, Bitcoin. I don't know. You guys do that? Anyway. We're going to experience the stability of, our, of life that's, a ba- that's based on Scripture. Okay? And we're going to long for others to know the Bible like we know it. We'll become agents of change in other people's lives as the Scriptures dwell within us. We'll weep when people don't know these, know this book. And we'll long to give it to them. We'll make sacrifices to see the churches are planted, that the word of God goes forward. All that will happen when we know the treasure that we hold in our hands. Amen? All right, well, we've got five minutes. Can't say I never end early. Do you have any questions? You're all just hungry. Sure, that's a great question. His question was, for anybody who couldn't hear it, you know, as we're thinking about applying Scripture, how do we know what applies and what's sort of just like, okay, that was for the first century audience or that was for Israel or whatever it may be. Um, that's probably way more than I can answer right here to, to scratch the itch. Um, but you're, you're, this is going to sound like a pun, but it's really not. As you, as you sit under good teaching, you're going to see that modeled. Like the hermeneutics that, that, the, that, the, that the teacher has, is going to, he's going to model that for you. And so he's going, to, he's going to help your Bible reading instincts. be the best way to put it. 
Um, that would be my shortest answer. And what I mean by that is like, you might not be a mechanic. You might not know how the engine operates. You might not be able to pop the hood and be like, oh, this is exactly what's happening in the engine here. And I can, I can tell you exactly in every scenario how this applies and that applies and this doesn't apply and why. But you're going to know how to drive. Like you get in your car and you can drive. And on the main, like you, it's, it's going to be working for you, right? Like you're, you're going to be applying the right kinds of things. You're going to be like, ah, like it's just going to be instinctual for you. Because the Spirit's going to be working through a good church like this to build those, um, to build that discernment in terms of like, huh, you know, I may have tried to apply that, but when Clay taught the spiritual gift series, like I've seen, there's really a lot more going on in that context than really just a one-to-one easy slam dunk application. Like there's a little bit more happening there. I wouldn't have known that before, but now I do, right? Because I've been in, I've been in a, a good church that's teaching the, the intention of the authors. Um, so my point there is just, as you're in a good church, your instincts are going to be developing in terms of like what's, what applies, what doesn't. You're going to, be, you're going to have more of a, a, a handle on the biblical story and the progressive nature of Revelation. You know, okay, back here, this is Leviticus, and this was Israel under the Old Covenant. Here's the purpose of that covenant. Now we're under Christ in the New Covenant here through the apostles. And so some of these things don't transfer because I know these texts over here now. You're just, you're going to be, my point is just like as you grow in a good church, those instincts are going to develop in terms of what applies and what doesn't. I know that sounds like a punt. You're probably looking for like a grid, um, but I think that's a little bit beyond the five minutes I've already gone over. No, 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 that's not, not your fault. But is that, I'm just curious, does that help or not? Sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And those are great. Those are great conversations to have. You know, on slightly more complicated issues. Yeah. So, even in our gift series, try to be very charitable to our, to our brothers and sisters in Christ that are similar to Sovereign Grace folks. You know, there's a lot of kind of craziness done in the name of charismatic theology. But then there's also a lot of people that are trying to be very faithful in what they're doing. And I have no problem, like, yoking up with a, with a brother or sister in Christ, trying to be faithful, trying to apply these things the way they see them in the scriptures. Let's just have conversations around the big word, the exegesis of those texts. Let's talk about that and see if, if your interpretation or mine or whatever is more faithful to the intention of the author. So that, that's just where you've got to go with some of these things. But yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There are a lot of faithful brothers and sisters that believe those things. Yep. All right, good. We'll, dis- we'll dismiss, and if you've got like a secret burning question, I'll hang around. So, all right, dismissed.